Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. They'll work through a process together with our team over the next six to nine months doing essentially three things that go into what we call a digital equity and connectivity plan. So the three things. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in eastern Kentucky, check them out. Appalachia Meets World. We're back another week. It's Will. And Neil. My I'm, man. Good to, I'm back, good to man. Hear you back, baby. Good to yeah, hear you voice back. Is back. The energy's back. Yeah. I don't have to carry us anymore. I mean, things are looking up. You sound so much better, man. For real. I'm glad you're feeling better. Yeah, I'm feeling much better. A lingering cough, but, you know, we all do this time of year, right? Yeah, I'll uh, write that off to allergies, even though I don't have allergies, but we'll, <laughs> we'll say that's what it is. Talking like a true Appalachian. When I cough in someone's face, I'll just tell them it's allergies. <laughs> all right. <laughs> what were you going to say? I didn't mean to cut you off. You know what I watched because of a recommendation from a certain Appalachian? I hope you watched the new hit series. On Netflix that I recommended. The Night Agent. The Night Agent. Did you watch it? Man, I'm on episode six. It's taking uh-huh. me a while. You're good, isn't it? <laughs> to be honest, it took me a couple episodes to get into it. I agree. I agree. I mean, you got to get past that first one and then. The plot, yes, it, it has intrigued me. But there are a couple of people in it that can't really act all that well. No, I, I totally agree with you. <laughs> I just like the story because I keep thinking, like the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, this is real. This 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 really goes on until I work in the White House and improve and and someone proves otherwise. The night agent's a real thing. <laughs> I'm sure part of it's based on reality. So okay. I, when I finish episode ten, I'll let you know my final okay. verdict. I I won't ask you any questions, man. I don't want. I don't know if I can put on a good poker face if you try to like guess who's behind it. <laughs> I have no idea right now, but I'll let you know. I'll be honest though, I was guessing it like episode three. I mean, I was wrong, but go. <laughs> <laughs> I just hope our listeners watch it too. Like, I mean, I feel like that was a strong recommendation, and I don't often do netflix recommendations so. well you definitely didn't recommend it for the acting chops <laughs> i got a question for you though yeah what's that it's kitty week oh, it's oh yeah kitty week i don't think the oh, listeners yeah. know no they don't have a clue the level of uh that i go to on uh on weeks like this 
I think he's your favorite Appalachian, and you went to see Kenny Chesney this week. You got to, you got to tell, talk about it. Tell me how it was. Yeah, man, he is my all-time favorite Appalachian, as you know. After the show, I'm convinced I'm giving him a new title. He's the modern day Elvis. Whoa! I said it. Words. I said it. Kenny Chesney <laughs> is the modern day Elvis. Man, what a show! He's the best. I mean, you know I'm not a big concert guy, but I will go to Kenny anywhere, anytime, because he puts on the best show. He's the best entertainer out there right now, bar none. I know you've been to a few. Do you think this one this week was the best? A few. Are you When you say a few, you, you mean seven. So, uh, <laughs> they, yeah, they keep him better. I did see him in Riverbend, though. I think that was last year, maybe two years ago. I can't remember exactly, but. Uh, that one was pretty good too. Just the, the whole atmosphere and, and where that's at, that scene is just pretty incredible. But I'm telling you, Rupp Arena last night, man, there was not an open seat in the place. Everybody on their feet for two and a half hours. And the dude is pouring the sweat. <laughs> I mean, pouring this. And what I love about Kenny is like from show one that I saw, to, to now, when he's he's in his late 50s, I guess, he's running around that stage. He's fit. He's in shape. And, of course, my man's got a cutoff on. Jeans and cutoff. <laughs> I've never seen him performing anything else. Jeans and a cutoff. Of course he does. Let me tell you what else I did this week, Will. I sent the man an email. I reached out. You sent Kenny an email? I did. I'm trying to get the most famous Appalachian on the most famous Appalachian <laughs> podcast. You got to let our listeners know how that response goes. I will. I will. As soon you know, they, they shot me something back immediately, which I was impressed with that they'd be reaching back out. But we'll see. So stay tuned. Stay tuned, so listeners. You, you've probably been to 10 concerts in your life, and seven of them has been Kenny. <laughs> well, maybe not 10. Maybe a few more than that. But, yeah, that's pretty, that's, that's pretty close. No kidding. Well, I know your passion for Kenny. You got a favorite Kenny song? So, like, I don't know if the listeners understand my passion. Like, I listen to NSR every single day. <laughs> XM, No Shoes, I listen to it every single day. No matter what I'm doing, where I'm going, who I'm with, it's on NSR. And, uh, and I saw your ears perk up when I talked about Kenny Week. I like to hear your passions, man. Oh, my gosh. I can't help it. I don't know. It's, it seems kind of weird, I guess, for a grown man to be such a <laughs> Kenny fan. But you asked me my favorite song, man. I, well, what's your favorite one he played last night? Oh, uh, they were so good, man. And that's the thing. Like, maybe that's why I like it so much because literally I know every word to every song that he that he sung. And I'm singing along with him. <laughs> Thank God I don't have a microphone. And everybody was, though. Everybody in the place was. I mean, it was just, it was awesome. Well, I'm glad you had a good time. Yeah, it's good, it good stuff. Good stuff. I'll go back anytime you want to go. Well, I'm, I'm glad we got a Kenny update. Yeah, man. Kenny was great. Glad we discussed it. Glad you brought it up. Glad you remembered. But do you have any uh, Appalachian news for us? I got a little bit today since we went, went on and on about Kenny. I'll keep this short. You know, we talked about ramps the other day, even though you don't even know what a ramp is. Uh, we're we're going to have a taste test. It's ramp season. I mean, you can find them anywhere, Neil. <laughs> I think I just picked some out of the yard. The next episode, I think you have to try a ramp, whether it be cooked 
whether it be in something, whether it be a, a concoction, something with ramp in it, you have to taste. I just wanted to bring it up because there's a, a, new, a new article that just came out that I saw. It's called uh-huh. Little Stinkers. It's time to hunt and celebrate the ramp of Appalachia. It was in the Pittsburgh Gazette. I just wanted to mention it because it's a pretty good article. It lays out how uh, the, kind of the history of the ramp in Appalachia and talks about some of the festivals. And, and it's just an interesting article. We'll put it in the show notes. I, I just wanted to mention it because we talked about ramps the other day and this article came out after that. So we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. Another little piece of news, the Appalachian Hill Climb. I know we had back roads of Appalachia on here previously, but the Appalachian Hill, Hill Climb was this past weekend in Pineville, Kentucky. We're sorry we didn't mention it beforehand, but I did want to mention it after the fact because on that day, April 22nd, the governor's office of Kentucky proclaimed April 22nd the SCCA, which is who puts on the event, the Sports Car Club of America, it was the SCCA Motorsports Day, April 22nd, in the state of Kentucky. People from all over the world came to Pineville, Kentucky, to watch this event. It's gotten crazy, uh, the amount of people and the amount of tourists and the amount of revenue that comes into the small town of Pineville for this event. So it's pretty cool. Uh, obviously, an event, I just wanted to mention it because it just happened. Uh, you can check out Backroads of Appalachia website to find out when the next event will be. I hate that we didn't mention that sooner, like you said. So maybe we need to make an appearance next year. I just want to mention quickly, again, the ARC 2023 Annual Conference. It's not until September, and I know we'll mention it before then, but you can register now. You just go to arc.gov. You can find out about Appalachia Rises, Resilience, Strength, and Transformation. <laughs> Want to mention that real quick. Also, the Opportunity Appalachia, which we've had on here. We had Donna Gambrel. They have an investor convening coming up May 31st through June 1st. You can check that out on their website, the Appalachia Community Capital CDFI.org. You can look for Opportunity Appalachia and, and register for their upcoming convening where they have high-profile speakers to talk about investment in Appalachia. So check that out. That was the last little piece of news that I had, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the show tonight. I know we've mentioned before about how much broadband gets brought up. We've been hearing about broadband for decades. I know you mentioned that in a previous episode, how much you've heard about it. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, uh, are you still sure you're not on the app news section? Because I feel like it's always app news in, in Appalachia discussing broadband. I mean, any given night you can turn on the TV or whatever, and here's somebody somewhere talking about broadband in Appalachia. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a huge need. It's like every day we hear something about how we're tackling this this big project, but, you know, I'm still waiting on boots on the ground. You know, I agree, and that's something I think we're going to get into tonight with our guest. It's Chris Warman from Connect Humanity, and if you've never heard of Connect Humanity, the Appalachian Regional Commission, they, ha- they have a grant fund. It's called the Appalachian Regional Initiative for Stronger Economies. They call it the Arise Grant. 
And we've talked about it before. It's basically a multi-state grant to try to get states throughout Appalachia to work together. The first grant that they gave out was for $6.3 million. And it went to support some of the work that Connect Humanity is going to be doing. They're going to be working with 50 underserved communities in every sub-region of Appalachia. That includes 12 of the 13 states throughout Appalachia. So I think the communities have to apply but they're going to choose 50 underserved communities to help with technical assistance, to help with planning for broadband, to also help them plan to apply for a lot of the funding that's going to be coming in regards to the broadband equity access and deployment uh, funds or the BEAD funds, as well as the Digital Equity Act funds, the DEA funds. So Chris obviously is the expert here. We wanted to have him on the show to talk about what Connect Humanity is going to be doing throughout Appalachia and, and a little bit about their organization and a little bit about this project going forward. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Let's get him on. All right, let's do it. Today we have a special guest, Chris Morgan. He's the co-founder and chief partnership and strategy officer for Connect Humanity. He has worked in technology since 1999, having first worked in digital communications and community building at large American nonprofits, then joined the Peace Corps in 2005, which took him to Romania, which led him to opening TechSoups, the Romania program, where he collaborated with a network of NGOs in that area. We really had him on today in regards to Connect Humanity and the partnership with the Appalachian Regional Commission. They were awarded through the Arise program, which we'll get into a grant to help communities throughout Appalachia to kind of combat the digital divide that is apparent throughout the region. Thank you, Chris, for being on the show. We definitely appreciate the time. My pleasure. We wanted to ask you a very important question, something we ask all our guests. Um, as most Appalachians are big on history, big on tradition. Our family, we're big on tradition as well. One of the traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holiday. Usually this gigantic spread, bigger than the meal, so we get full before we eat. We wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite appetizer or just holiday dish? Oh, that's a really good question. The first thing that comes to mind is meatballs. I don't know why. I've just always liked meatballs, so like Italian style. Greek style, whatever, uh, except Swedish. I don't know about sweet and meatballs. <laughs> that part doesn't work for me, but basically any other ones, which is kind of a weird answer, but yeah, that's probably it. Do you like the crock pot meatballs where you have to use a toothpick to get to them or just any? That'll work. Yeah. yeah. But pretty okay. much any kind. Yeah. Yeah. As long as nice. it's not sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Uh, now that we have that question out of the way, really wanted to get into the ARC investment that I mentioned in regards to the Arise program. But first of all, maybe we can back up a minute and talk about Connect Humanity. Can you kind of speak to Connect Humanity, what it is, what you do, and kind of why you founded it in the first place? Absolutely. So <clears throat> Connect Humanity, we're a nonprofit, uh, you know, a nonprofit organization that started really because there 
aren't other people funding in this particular area of digital equity infrastructure? So there have been some other foundations in the past, um, people like the Ford Foundation and the Internet Society, who've given grants for a lot of different things around the idea of digital equity. <clears throat> but no one who's really focused on the combination in particular of grants and loans to people who are trying to build new networks. And maybe just real quick say, <clears throat> what do I mean when I say digital equity? Um, since we've sort of centered our organization around that, the definition that we use is that digital equity is sort of a, a state of being. It's sort of a, a time and place where people have the high-speed, affordable internet tools and skills that they need to be a part of a digital world. And, you know, for us, the world, you know, it's a fact, the world's going online, right? Healthcare is going online, education's going online, work is going online. There's so many things going online. But as you know, and I'm sure a lot of the folks who are paying attention to this recording know, there are a lot of folks in the US and around the world who don't have connectivity. We're talking like 40 million Americans who are still entirely offline. There's something like 120 million Americans who don't have enough internet speed to be on a Zoom call like we are right now. That's crazy. That's a third, that's one in three Americans do not have the internet that they need to have a virtual consultation with a doctor when their hospitals just closed down the road, right? Like hospitals are closing all across the United States and rural areas. I'm from a small town in Missouri. Uh, you know, joke that my high school is in a cornfield. That's my mostly true. There was a parking lot on one side. So it was three sides cornfield. And, you know, that town like Warrensburg, Missouri did not have sort of network engineers. It had digital divide problems, but like who was going to solve them? The government, you know, they, they've thrown money at this issue in the past. They're throwing money at this issue right now. It'll help. It won't finish the job. The sort of foundation community who usually steps in when governments can't quite get the job done uh, they just don't know how to do the work. So that's why we started the organization, sort of a roundabout way of saying it. But, you know, the sort of role of philanthropy and the kind of impact investing that we get into is really to step in where government and business aren't going to get the job done. That's why we started it. What we do on sort of a day-to-day -day basis, uh, communities are put in touch with us, usually Somebody calls us because they're like, hey, I was working in, you know, like this Enfield, North Carolina, and ran into these folks who really want to build a network there. And they don't, you know, they need financial support. They know how to do the work. This is a true story. It's an organization called yeah, Wave 7. They, uh, the husband and wife team that started it, the husband's a telecom engineer, retired, and the wife's sort of the business person in the relationship. And together, they were just fed up with the fact that you couldn't access the internet in their town because basically when people were deciding where to build the internet they went for the rich places first and enfield north carolina didn't make the list so they'd been left out and that was not something this couple was going to stand for so they decided to start a small internet service provider an isb and they started building the internet which is exactly the kind of folks we like people that are just like yeah we're not going to take it anymore we need the internet for our kids for our grandma, it's like, we all need it. And they just roll up their sleeves and get in there. Then the question is, at a certain point, you know, you need money. You, you, this is not cheap business. You know, you got to buy fiber, you got to buy radios, you got to buy a lot of stuff. And then training sometimes on how to do it. 
So people will put folks like Enfield's kind of little ISP in touch with us. And then often we'll do a grant. The grant is, you know, like most grants, it's a it's support to figure things out. <laughs> so in that case, the business model, uh, do a little work on their planning. And then the next thing that we'll do is working with the plans that communities put together, we'll try to help them raise money. So we'll either help them go look for government money if it's available. And if it isn't, we'll finance. So we have a small loan fund that we use to get other people to put their money on the table. So last year we made uh, almost $5 million in loans. And then that brought another 55 million of other people's money to the table. So that way, you know, we, we like to think that we're able to meet communities sort of where they are on their journey towards everyone having the internet and tools and skills that they need with the right kind of money. You know, do you need money to help with planning? Do you need money to buy equipment? Make sure that folks who have been, again, sort of ignored, get some attention. There's an organization in the Appalachian region we've had on the show before. It's called FAHI. I don't mm-hmm. know if you're familiar yep. with FAHI. But FAHI's yep. mission has always been around affordable housing, around network partners. They've shifted that mission to almost specifically focus also on this digital divide or digital equity. They even have a 10-20-30 model where they say 10% of funding should go to communities with above 20% poverty for over 30 years. So you can see their mission. I know you had a blog post that mentioned three things that we can do to tackle the digital divide. And that was all organizations like FAHI should focus a part of their mission on the digital equity. Number two, philanthropy should get off the bench, like you just mentioned, and also move move past market-based solutions. Those were three of the primary things that you mentioned in your blog post. But we've seen broadband mentioned. You can look at studies from 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Broadband was such a high priority then, and nothing has really been done in those 10, 20 years. Is it cost? Is it capacity? Is it the market, like you mentioned? Is it politics? Why haven't we uh, bridged that digital divide to date? Yeah, uh, I think it's a mess of all those things put together, um, (laughs) unfortunately. You know, it's interesting, as I've been building this organization, talking to people, sort of decision makers in government and business and foundations, one of two things comes up. One is, really? That's still a problem? Which is fascinating. (laughs) It tells you something about... You know, people who've had the internet for a really long time, they just, they can't imagine a world without it at this point. And then the other thing that comes up is we tried that once and it was really hard. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. I mean, so's, so's hunger. People are still hungry. You're going <laughs> to stop trying? Come on. This is a big, nasty, gnarly problem. I fully appreciate that. That's why we got to get in there and do some work. What does seem to block it other than mentality is Some of it is business, frankly. You know, there are a lot of businesses who've been, uh, their business model doesn't really allow them or enable them to work with lower cost models. So, you know, they built a bunch of infrastructure. They're trying to get that money back through the cost of service that they're providing. And, you know, certain communities can pay a lot more money than other communities. So they go to those communities and they don't go to the other communities. Unfortunately, yeah, the government has tried to throw money at this. There was a big report out from Deloitte, the consulting firm, late last year, maybe. The last round of government funding, $55 billion that the U.S. government put into corporate 
America to solve this problem, which if you look at how much it's going to cost, somewhere north of $200 million, or sorry, $200 billion, it should have moved the needle about 25%, and it moved the needle 1%. It did 1% of the job because there weren't really accountability mechanisms for what if you didn't do the work. And that's where like the politics and the business get a little too close on this issue. It ensures that there are loopholes and that ends up hurting actual normal people. That's again, part of the reason we started this. You know, yeah. We absolutely have enough money in the world. We certainly have enough money in America. We have the technical competency. We know how to connect everybody, but we've allowed it not to happen by this sort of fo focus on market models that are charging a lot more money than they need to. You, you know, you look at the flip side of that, Chattanooga, Tennessee, you know, Chattanooga, they have their fiber network and they treated it like a utility, like water or electricity. It's run by their utility. And the Chattanooga example was fascinating because <clears throat> during the pandemic, when you know suddenly everybody had to do their homework at home, they essentially brought internet to the, I think it was 7,000 homes that were on the free and reduced lunch program. So they extended 300 megabit reciprocal, so 300 down, 300 up to those homes for free for two to three years. And then if uh, basically after that, it was gonna switch to $3 a month. I don't know what you pay for internet, but three <laughs> bucks a month for 300 down, 300 up, is amazing and you know we've seen that sort of one dollar per 100 megabit down 100 megabit up price point all over when you start treating internet as a public utility not as like you know something that's great to have if you're wealthy enough but something that really everybody needs like water or electricity you let the city run it as infrastructure and then you let providers fight to provide services over the top. That's when a real fair market kicks in. And, you know, because people compete, they compete like crazy to provide service. And because for them, it's all profit at that point, right? If the infrastructure is in the ground and they're just sort of leasing it, they don't have to recoup lost costs. They're just, they're earning money. It's all upside. And again, you know, we know how to do this. We've really chosen not to. And unfortunately, because of the sort of closeness of politics and business on this, two things, well, really just one thing happens, you know, we, we quit not solving it in favor of keeping share prices up, which I'm not going to dump on corporate America for their actual duty to keep their share prices up. But what I would, what I would hope is that some people would get a little creative and understand that if they've already built a lot of infrastructure, they could extend that to communities that they haven't served and still make money. I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, Neil and I, we come from small town, Eastern Kentucky, small town Appalachia, where we have always been underserved, you know, even in regards to cell service, mm -hmm. cell service in that area was the, you know, we were the last to get a lot of the cell service. And I'm assuming that's market-based, you know, yep. the larger providers didn't want to bring it to our area because they didn't think they could recoup the costs. Right. Um, you mentioned some creative solutions like co-ops, municipal utilities, smaller digital providers that um, really focus on connectivity over profit, yeah. which I think is really important. Uh, among some of those creative solutions, do you see ones that work better than others? Or is it just kind of a, you know, try it and see if it works type of model? Yeah. You know, I think for me, um, any of them, whatever gets a job done. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when I, when I say job done to me, that's 
high speed and affordable for people is a good answer. I think I lean towards municipal and cooperative models for a couple of reasons. If you look at the top 10 ISPs in America last year, the top 10 internet service providers, PC Magazine every year does a ranking and they look at things like affordability and ubiquity. How many people are served in that sort of footprint of that company and speed, those three things. So who has it? How many people have it within their geography? How fast is it? How affordable is it? The top 10 ISPs last year, I think for the second year in a row, were all municipal models where you have the municipal, you know, the, the city owning the fiber and then letting people compete over the top. That certainly seems like a winner. Co-ops, I really like just because, you know, if you look at like Missouri, where I'm from, Missouri, about 85% of rural Missourians get their electricity from an electrical co-op. You know, a hundred years ago, U.S. got electricity out in the rural areas because of co-ops, because of people who are sort of supported to build their own electrical grids. And then every month you pay a little bit, but you also earn money back because it's a co-op if it's profitable, right? It, it works out. Same with rural telephones, like the rural telephone cooperatives are still all over the U.S., fewer than electric. But, you know, that's that's an incredible thing to look at in terms of people coming together to build kind of to co-invest and make sure that they get the kinds of services they need. In the U.S., probably the quickest way to work. So for a city or a town, a municipal model would be great. For rural areas, working with the rural electrical co-ops, absolutely a great way to go because they already know how to do things like string a wire. <laughs> you know, they, they do it all the time. They know how to maintain stuff. They have trucks. They have crews. They can fix it if it breaks, but they also have customers and billing mechanisms. You know, running fiber over the top of an electrical service is an incredibly cost-effective way to build out a new service. So, and let's be honest, I mean, building, owning, operating, it's profitable. This is, this absolutely. is a profitable business. Absolutely. Especially, you know, especially if you start working with some of the government money that's been made available, right? So there's $46 billion of U.S. government money coming out through the BEAD uh, Broadband Equity and Deployment Act, part of the Infrastructure and Jobs Act. $46 billion, if it's all spent perfectly, yeah, will help move, you know, could bring about 25% of unconnected Americans online, if it all works perfectly. We'll see, you know, government money, eh, who knows. But the there are a lot of people trying to make it work right, to be fair. But, you know, I think the right there, if you were to put a lot of that into things like rural electrical co-ops, make it very easy for them just to buy the equipment and get going, that money goes a really long way. So, yeah, you know, they're... If you do get some subsidy up front, then it's even more profitable over time, right? Let somebody else pay for the, the poles and the wires. You got a lot of runway there. Yeah, I was part of a project that laid three mile of fiber. We got an EDA grant, 100 mm -hmm. gig that connected university hospitals with the Cleveland Clinic. Cool. That's, that's unheard of, 100, 100 gig of fiber uh, through parts of a city. And while it was possible to lay the fiber and we could fund that, there was this issue with the third mile. People still mm. weren't connecting in regards yeah. to that third mile. Is that a problem that you all encounter or something that we need to overcome? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I think after the pandemic, it's become sort of front of mind for a lot of families. And, you know, we're certainly hearing from CDFIs, banks, 
other sort of community foundations, people who have a lot of local constituency, that people are mad that they don't have it now. And I get it. I would be too, right? Like it's not just whether you have it or don't have it today, but suddenly realizing what that could mean for your family into the future. I think this is going to become more of an issue that, you know, for good reason, both sides of the aisle need to support and are right now supporting. So I think that, yeah, I, I mean, it, it is a challenge connecting people who've never been connected before if they don't really understand why they should be. But a lot of that shifted in the pandemic. So I think maybe less now than it was. Yeah. We don't hear a lot before, of people being like, no, thanks. I don't want yeah. the internet. <laughs> before we get into uh, the work you're doing in Appalachia, I, I know you mentioned capacity. You mentioned uh, network engineers in, in small rural towns. After we become connected, what what then? I mean, is there an education yeah. process? A lot of people, even if they aren't, con- even if they are connected, still don't know how to use the internet. Um, Absolutely. What what happens after uh, we fund all this? Um, the networks are in place. The broadband's in place. What then? Yeah. So I mean, two things. I think. Well, really, maybe three. One, devices. You know, people got to get laptops until the sort of maybe there's some magical day in the future where it's fun to do your taxes on your phone. I kind of <laughs> doubt it. But um, yeah, the, there there's a lot of sort of rhetoric out there from the telephone companies, the big telephone companies in particular that, oh, no, 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 everything's fine. Like people get mobile service. I, I doubt any of them are doing their, you know, their daily work on their phone, maybe answering a couple of emails, but like working a spreadsheet, come on now. There's going to be a lot of work to figure out how you get devices to people and then training, right? How to use it. Uh, what kind of services uh, should people be looking for online? Support. I mean, like I think about my mom. She's pretty savvy at a lot of things, but she's always afraid she's going to break a computer, which I, I it's it's fascinating to me. These these are built not to be broken these days. There was a time I remember when I was a kid, my dad brought home a computer when I was like, I don't know, nine years old, this late 80s, like a super early computer. And um, it, uh, yeah, I, I could have broken that for sure. <laughs> but today's computers, not so much, you know? Yeah. So like there's fear that people need to get over. And then understanding, as I said earlier, like, why? Why do I need this thing in my life? Well, you know, the census went online last year. You want to be counted? Then, or well, three years ago now, then you got to be online. Other things are going online too. Mentioned healthcare earlier, but a lot of things are moving only online. In the United States, I saw a statistic from a few years ago that 80% of job postings are only online. That's nuts. That's nuts in a world where like a lot of people aren't online. So there is that piece of like literacy and training and support. And then the other thing is really looking at like, are the services, especially government services online, usable? This is a whole different space that we got to work on because you could get people online, you could get them comfortable, and then they hit a really bad website and they're not going to use it anyway. So like government uh, services, other services, accessibility online, that's that's another piece that, you know, there's a lot of work on that happening just to make them more user-friendly, but there's a long way to go there. And I just say from our side, when we look at working with a community, we look at both digital devices and digital literacy. And what we've worked out with a lot of the communities where we've uh, done investments is 
essentially they hold a percentage of that future profit of their network to pay for digital navigators, these kind of people that help train people. Usually they're like at a library or another space, to like help people figure out how to use the internet. We've got some work going on on device access as a way to help get people signed up for the internet so that they get off the ground with it. They get it some training. They start really using it and valuing it. The second or third device, they're probably going to have to pay for themselves. But um, if we can at least get people going on it, then that's a choice that's easier to make. So there's a long way to go on that. But the idea that, you know, as you said earlier, networks are profitable. And if you can hold a percentage of that to help with the hard part, great. Yeah, I think uh, those digital navigators are, are so important. People, yeah. especially uh, internet savvy people, think that that's not that big of a deal. But heck, I think up till two years ago, my mom didn't even know that she could email outside of her office at work. She thought she yeah. had to be on that computer at work yeah. in order to use her emails. So uh, yeah, education, just uh, allowing, helping people navigate the process, I think is really important when we get beyond the actual uh, laying of the networks and, and opening that up. Absolutely. Uh, I wanted to, to ask you real quick uh, about Starlink and solutions like that. Do you see those as just band-aids until we can figure out a, a better solution? Um, or do you think that those things are beneficial for rural areas into the future? Yeah, I, I don't know that I'd go so far as band-aid, but it's pretty close to that. I, I You know, the technology can work. Uh, absolutely. My parents were on satellite on their farm in Missouri. That's what they used to get hooked up, do their email. Um, it wasn't Starlink. This was, you know, 10 years ago. It it works, right? Um, absolutely, it works. I think there are a lot of questions about other pieces of it. Like, you know, what happens if the equipment breaks? There isn't really a lot of service plan for communities to get hooked up via Starlink. And what about the pricing? you know, getting hooked up with Starlink, there's not a great track record of the prices staying close to the prices that you signed up for every couple of years going up dramatically in some cases. So that's a business model question, less than a technology question. There's also, you know, the, the more people you have using it, the less bandwidth you have, like any other technology. So it absolutely can work and is doing some great stuff in different parts of the world, but it it can work. That's why I'm not quite saying Band-Aid, but I think from our side, investing in really, frankly, proven technologies like fiber and wireless, the combinations of if you're in really mountainous or hilly areas, you know, you can't just run fiber everywhere. Fine. Cool. But you can do wireless bridges. You can do a lot of stuff to make sure that people have high-speed internet with technologies that we know work right now. And yeah. I, you know, I might keep some focus on that <laughs> for a yeah. while. Right. And hey, if if Starlink works out, amazing. We won't we won't need those towers anymore. Nobody likes looking at them. Bring them down. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, I mentioned in the beginning why we had you on the show. I wanted to focus on the ARC grant that I mentioned before. It's the Appalachian Regional Initiative for Stronger Economies, or what they like to refer to as the ARAS grant. It was funded through the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law or the IIJA Infrastructure <laughs> Investment and Jobs Act to bring states together in order to apply. You ha- It has to be a multi-state application. 
And the first award of that ROS program was for $6.3 million. And it was led, it is being led by Connect Humanity. And it's to help 50 underserved communities uh, with key partners in 12 of the 13 states throughout Appalachia and every sub-region in Appalachia. So I wanted to ask you about the grant, about the work you're doing, about that process. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, and, you know, anybody wants to, before the end of the month on our website, connecthumanity.fund slash arise, you'll see what you need to, what you need to do. Um, basically, we're looking for community leaders. It could be from City Hall or a development district. They could be from a, you know, community college. It, we're not particularly concerned with who the leader on the program is, as long as they have the ability to work with their local government, because local government's got a lot of information, a lot of papers, uh, paperwork, documents, GIS data for doing network maps, this kind of thing, you're going to have to work with your local government. So that's kind of a criteria <laughs> that you you need that. But otherwise, um, basically what, what we're doing is uh, folks will apply. And then if they get into the program, they'll join a cohort. So they'll grow, uh, join a group of six or seven other communities that are hopefully not too physically far from them. And they'll work through a process together with our team over the next six to nine months doing essentially three things that go into what we call a digital equity and connectivity plan. So the three things are they'll basically do a high level or medium level network plan. So really looking at what are the technologies that are going to work in this community uh, mapping the community. So what's it actually going to cost? Where is the internet now? Where isn't it? What's it going to cost to bridge that so you can do a bill of materials and actually start figuring out a budget? Looking at a variety of other sort of technological points to build out a technology plan. The second piece of the plan is business planning. So what kind of operator is going to run this here? Is it a municipal network? Is it a cooperative? Is it an ISP? Like what actually makes sense? And some of that's about the law where you are. Some of it's about sort of the network economics, uh, sort of like how profitable is it going to be or not. And then the third piece is a financing plan. So how much, like what kind of money do you need over what kind of time period to stand up that entity described in the business model to run the network, which is described in the technology plan. So those three things together give you a pretty accurate look at what's it going to take? What's it going to take to get everybody online here with high-speed, affordable internet? Then at that point, that's a time to be about when states start uh, releasing their calls for the federal funding that's coming available. And if the BE, the B yeah, funding, the DEA. Exactly. Exactly. So BEAD and DEA. If a community at that point wants to go pursue federal funding, fine. That's that's cool with us. You know, we will assign them a grant writer and we'll help them write those grants because applying for those is not going to be easy, right? Everything you'll need will be in those plans. Yeah, you know, that doesn't mean folks have a grant writer hanging out next door. So, you know, make sure that people have some grant writing support. Then if they don't want to apply for the federal funds, that's where we'll look at investing. So um, in parallel to this, we're working on building an investment fund that will be essentially used to provide low cost capital to these communities so that they can 
build the networks anyway. You know, even if you do get government money, you're probably going to need some extra support uh, financially. If you don't, you certainly that if you didn't get the grant, it doesn't mean you don't need the Internet. So making sure that we have another source of revenue there for people or another source of uh, um, investment funding for people. The With that, um, it's actually something I'm pretty excited about with that that fund going to be working with CDFIs, you know, community development financial institutions, banks across the region. Like we work a lot with Truist and their CRA group, their community reinvestment act group, the Truist community capital side of the house and foundations, other impact investors. They need to learn how to do this work. You know, this is work that is going to be needed for a long time. BEAT is not going to save the day. It'll do a good, you know, sort of chunk of work, but still going to be a lot of communities unconnected. There are other sources of funding that can absolutely get the job done, but those funders don't know how to do it. That's fine. I'm again, like no, no, no shame. It's just, they haven't done it before. Like Fahi, fantastic organization, mostly historically focused on housing. Like a lot of the CDFIs have been understandable. This is the next piece. And I'm glad that, you know, organizations like them are starting to recognize it. But then internally, if you're one of those financing organizations, you have to figure out, like somebody brings you a proposal, is it legit? Like, how do you how do you run the numbers on that? And that's exactly what we'll be doing with the investment fund. We'll be partnering with and training organizations like FAHI, um, Appalachian Community Capital and others to really go through the process and learn with us. So that in the future, the plan would be to do a second fund, we would move into the backseat. So the first one, we'll lead it, we'll train people how to do it, and then we'll become sort of just there for support. And that way, hopefully, at the end of that, you have a bunch of communities who know how to do this work, and then you have a bunch of people in the banking industry who know how to finance this work. Because as you said earlier, networks are profitable, basically everywhere on the planet, including in like the remotest parts of the Amazon jungle. Seriously, we're doing some work there. They're still profitable. It's not a lot of money over, you know, and it's not fast money. It's a little bit of money over a long period of time. But these things do tend to make money, which means banks should absolutely finance them. Yeah, but right. that takes training on the bank side. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you mentioned CFIs. They're so important for the smaller rural areas. We've had we had Donna Gambrell from ACC on the show yeah, before. Nice, she's great. Their yeah. organization is great. It's a network of CDFIs that can do really do good things in in this area um, in the in in bridging that digital divide. We talk about it all the time on here. Also, doers, mm-hmm. people that just get out there and get stuff done. As you are going through this, I hope the people that are applying to be a part of these 50 communities, I hope they're doers, that they get beyond the plan. I like how you mentioned you're going to help with capacity. You're going to help with grant writing. I think that's so important for these smaller communities that just don't have the capacity. Some people yeah. within the network may have the skills, but they only, they have limited time and what they can do, what they can perform. And that, that's Absolutely. always been a burden for smaller communities. So I, I congratulate you and commend you for the work that you're doing in that regard. But back to doers, once the plan is in place, once you have those 50 communities, is there potential to grow beyond the 50 communities? Is there a stage two uh, for this process? Uh, what happens after you help them uh, build that plan? Yeah, absolutely. But uh, don't tell my team yet. 
it's a yeah it's a, it's a lot of work um but the of course yeah i mean this is our job this is what we we're founded to do and you know we'll do it as long as we can and so we're you know, we're going to be around. And I think one of the the nice things with this, through this process, a lot of folks from ARC to the various, you know, ACC, Donna's organization and others, a lot of people are going to learn how to both do the work on the ground and how to do the work from the funding perspective. And with these funds, we'll be around a while. Uh, they take a long time both to build and to deploy and to manage and support communities through the process. Because yeah, it's, again, it's a, it's a lot of work, but again, that's what we're here for. So, <laughs> another question that we ask all our guests, it's always interesting to hear perspectives, especially people that aren't from the region. What's the first thing you think of when I say the word Appalachia? Mountains. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which, yeah, I, you know, there are other things which I, I don't know if I mean music. I love music, and I, I think about music think about bluegrass like i said i you know a lot of time in rural missouri and but i was born in new mexico and never really lived there and i've always like loved spending time in the ozarks out in the mountains in the southwest the few times i've been around appalachia just i love the landscape so yeah for me that's a big part of it yeah i appreciate there's a lot of other stuff (laughs) that i could think about too but oh no uh, really good answer. We hear mountains a lot. And, you, you know, we we'd like to get outside the region to speak to people outside the region to hear that perspective. It's kind of why we named the, the podcast Appalachia Meets World, because we don't want yeah. to just focus on things that are happening in Appalachia. We find that when we go outside the region, even in small town Missouri, you may have noticed this with working with com- in, in communities throughout Appalachia. There are a lot more similarities uh, between the smaller rural areas, then there are differences. People just need to, a little bit of help in realizing that. Uh, challenges are often the same. The solutions look a lot different based on your assets, mm-hmm. but, but a lot of times these places have much more similarities than they have differences. I agree. And, you know, I think one of the things that can be absolutely true is it, given a little time and space, people can come up with amazing answers for themselves, right? And I was talking to this guy, Neil, who runs a farm in Indiana, and it's a, he got excited about technology and his farm has something like 30 patents now on different kinds of like smart farm equipment, right? So farm equipment that they've been able to hook up to satellites and other things and farm better. And my dad was a agricultural economist and it was great talking to Neil about just sort of what he's been able to do on his farm, primarily because he has connections with people like the Purdue University Research and Development Foundation, who gave him a little bit of breathing room to try some stuff. And I think, yeah, this is something that's true with technology. It's true with all the kind of work we do around digital equity. You know, for me, um, the point of this work is not getting people connected. It's about what happens afterwards. It's a, and the fact that it's just necessary, right? Like we have to do it. We have to get people online when the rest of the world's going online around them. But then what happens can be amazing stuff. And you, know, you start seeing different kinds of markets emerge. You start seeing people learn differently, teach differently. And you, know, you want Appalachia to meet the world. I mean, the fastest way to do that's online. And that's, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. 
it's a blessing and a curse, of course. You know, to your point about then what you got, you got some responsibility to talk to people about how the internet can both be this incredible gateway and can lead to problems, both, right? Like, there's a lot of stuff on the internet that's not great, but yeah, it's like it's the same with books. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta teach your kids, right? There's so much that is. I'm sure fascinating. And you know, like Donna, who you mentioned with her, uh, they've got their program around sort of, you know, working with different startups and innovative people across Appalachia. And yeah, I'm thrilled to learn more about the region and see what that is. And then start thinking about some of these communities where we're going to bring people online and what it can mean for them also in sort of an innovation and kind of economic sense. So yeah, I don't know. Fascinating. Yeah, that's that's great because I mean, like I said, you know, broadband's been in plan for in plans for decades, even in this region. Yeah. There's a lot of great yeah. organizations doing a lot of great work around uh, the digital divide, and we were very thankful that you're here, that your organization's here helping in that process. One last question I wanted to ask you: We focus our podcasts on place and perspective. This is a question that we ask everyone. Place is really important for Neil and I. It's really important for Appalachia. So we wanted to ask you just, and you you, you, uh, briefly alluded to it. You mentioned Missouri several times, but just where do you call home? What makes it home for you? What makes it unique? That's a funny question. So born in New Mexico, my dad, um, agricultural economist that I mentioned was a researcher. And so I spent most of my childhood in Botswana in Southern Africa, some in South America, then middle school, high school, Missouri, my mom's in Missouri, my dad's passed, unfortunately, my brother's in Missouri. So I got a lot of family in sort of like uh, Southern Missouri, which would kind of be the answer, except earlier at the beginning of the show, you mentioned that um, I, I joined Peace Corps when I was uh, out of college a couple of years. I've been working, I don't know, three years out of school. And then it's like, hey, you know, grew up overseas. I want to I want to try some of that again. Joined Peace Corps and ended up in Romania back in 2005. And Peace Corps is a 27-month volunteering gig. I ended up staying in Eastern Europe for nine years and started my first uh, started the first community foundation in Romania, and it was the first thing I really started. Brought TechSoup into Romania, so started another organization, helped a bunch of people start things there, and you know, funny enough, there's a small town in Romania out in the mountains, an area that looks an awful lot like Appalachia that I would probably call home. It's sort of where I grew up as an adult, <laughs> you know, and got God kids there and more of that food in me than anywhere else. The longest I've ever lived in one place is a small town in rural Romania. Wow, so, that's very cool. Yeah. And yeah, you know, it's funny that you got all the, you got a lot of stuff going on there that I think would resonate in Appalachia. Smallhold farmers, you know, a lot of people there who are farming on usually under a hectare, maybe two hectares, uh, a lot of orchards. Um, so a lot of apples and pears and things like that. A lot of small dairy people, you know, got a couple of cows, a couple of horses, a couple of goats, a couple of sheep kind of thing. It's like small farm landscape when you get out. And then lumber, you know, a lot of lumber in the mountains. And it's gorgeous. And it's got a lot of the challenges of being a part of the world that's been overlooked for a long time as well and sort of you know figuring that out and young people there figuring out what it means to be from a place that is called transylvania (laughs) and um it's fascinating yeah so it's so interesting like i said there there are much more similarities than there are differences than we can find even even across the seas 
So uh, yeah. Chris, we wanted to thank you so much for being on the show, but really thank you for founding the this organization for the work you do in regards to organization, but especially the work that you will be doing and are doing in Appalachia. And if you want to briefly just let people know again where they can uh, go to your website, where they can apply if they're a community that is interested within Appalachia, can you just let people know again before I let you go? Sure. Yeah, so it's connecthumanity.fund slash arise. Connecthumanity.org, it's some uh, yoga group in Austin, <laughs> Texas. They wouldn't give it to us. So connecthumanity.fund slash arise. That's us. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much again for being here. My pleasure. Broadband coming soon. I really appreciate Chris coming on the show and sharing his knowledge. So many interesting things that I, I mean, I don't understand, to be honest, but, uh, you know, lots of good stuff going on. Yeah, it's great to hear the work that they're going to be doing. We definitely appreciate what his organization does and what they're going to be doing throughout Appalachia. We talked about capacity in the episode. You know, it's so, so important, like for the small towns that don't have the capacity. A lot of them, it's not that they don't have the knowledge. They just don't have the capacity to compete for some of these grants that are going to be competitive. So this opportunity that connect humanities providing for these small towns to give them that direct technical assistance just going to be a game changer for some of them for sure for sure man it's going to be great for uh communities throughout appalachia mm-hmm. transitioning into our next section of the show will do you i've been kind of highlighting businesses lately but i thought about just asking you tonight did you have one that you wanted to highlight for the app biz of the week I wanted to talk about an organization. The majority of the time we highlight businesses, but tonight I wanted to highlight an organization in regards to the topic that we talked about tonight, obviously broadband and how important it is for not only the, our region, but the country as a whole to, like we talked about in the episode, to really bridge that digital divide. And that organization is the National Broadband Resource Hub. So it's broadbandhub.org. They are a free online community for government leaders and nonprofits working to expand broadband access and affordability. They kind of have three pillars of what they do. On their website, they have an incredible resource library, anything you could think of from Broadband 101 to how to get connected to how to find funding, everything in this resource library, all free, all online for communities. The second part is community conversations. They have events, webinars constantly. They also try to bring communities together to learn from one another. The last piece that they have is a help desk. So you can write in or call in directly to this National Broadband Resource Hub. If you have questions, if you're a community, you can call in directly and they can help you through a process. They can help you answer the questions. So it's just a a tremendous online resource for communities, for leaders to find out more about broadband. You know, they, they understood in the beginning how important broadband is but also how important for these communities to know as much as possible so they can go forward and being like we mentioned in the episode, being doers 
instead of just planners. Absolutely. That's uh, who we are in Appalachia. So I'm glad you mentioned that group. Man. What a perfect, what a perfect group to highlight. So that's our at biz of the week. You want to shout out that website again, Will? Yes, it's Broadband Hub. So it's B-R-O-A-D-B-A-N-D-H-U-B dot org. Broadbandhub.org. And it's for the National Broadband Resource Hub. So I just wanted to thank Chris again for being on the show, for sharing all his knowledge, but also for the work that they're going to be doing throughout Appalachia. As he mentioned on the show, if you're a community in Appalachia and you need this assistance, definitely check out their website, go apply. They're right in the process of having communities apply. Uh, soon they'll be choosing those communities and providing that technical assistance. So we want to thank him again for being on the show and all the work that he's doing. Yes, sir. Thanks again, Chris. Appreciate your time. Big Willie, appreciate yours as well. Glad you're feeling better. Great wrap up to the week, the Kenny Chesney week. And uh, I'm looking forward to his next show. Yeah, <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to mention, I was going to mention the wrap up to Kenny week. I appreciate you sharing. Like I said, your your ears lifted, your eyes lit up when I asked you about Kenny Week. You, you found what, what gets me going. Yeah. My chickens. <laughs> <laughs> Which we haven't talked about in a while. Next week, we might talk about both. You may just implode. Yeah, I know. I need an update. I need a chicken update next week. But until next right. time. Stay cool. tuned. If we mention stuff we're going to talk about next week, I guess you know what that means. Come to the end of this show. I guess we can end it like we usually do. Till next time. Peace. Thank y'all very much. I want to play y'all a song now that I'm, I got to say it's one of my favorite songs that I've ever recorded for a lot of reasons, but it paints the perfect picture of what it's like growing up in the country. And in East Tennessee, it was no different for me. I, uh, it's called Back Where I Come From. I hope y'all enjoy this. In the town where I was raised The clock ticks and the cattle graze Time passed with amazing grace Back where I come from You can lie on a river bank Paint your name on a water tank Miscount all the beers you drank Back where I come from
Some say it's a backward place Narrow minds on the narrow ways But I make it a point to say That's where I come from 